Hi, everybody. This is Scotty Iseri from the Imagine Neighborhood. Today, we've got an episode that's once again for the grown-ups. We're going to talk again with Dr. Aisha White from the University of Pittsburgh Pride Program. We're going to talk about her role in the Imagine Neighborhood from her library in Nairobi land and dig a little bit deeper into our Imagine Equity series. So let's give a call to Dr. Aisha. Dr. Aisha White, PhD. Dr. Aisha, thank you so much for coming back to the Imagine Neighborhood. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks for inviting me, Scotty. Well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Imagine Equity series. This was sort of new ground for the Imagine Neighborhood, and we were so lucky to have you join Dr. Jasmine and Dr. Sherry in helping guide what we do. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about what you do on the Imagine Neighborhood show. Yes, I see my role on the Imagine Neighborhood show as providing insight based on some of the research that I've read. I have not conducted the research, but I've read a lot of research so that the information I share informs the creation of the segments and the episodes in ways that are authentic and actual and really useful, but also to provide any kind of resources that that I think might be beneficial to the creation of the show for writers to take a look at and then use those however they see fit in, in producing the content. I'm curious how it feels you know, in my mind, research is a, it's it's there's a lot of precision there. You're looking at data, you're looking at specific ways that people are are interacting with one another. And my job in the Imagine Neighborhood, as, as with the writers, is we kind of take that research and we kind of crumple it up and fold it up and make a hat out of it. I'm wondering how it feels to have the the research kind of stretched and mangled a little bit into something that's that's a silly story about robots and dinosaurs. Yeah, I think that it's really a fascinating process for me. What I've found is that it's pretty amazing the way the writer can actually take some of the information that I share that is pretty dry, maybe, and factual and turn that into something that is true to that information, but at the same time, creative and interesting and really engaging and funny for the audience. And so I think it's an excellent way to take to share research with a broader audience in a way that they may not even realize they're understanding research. Speaking of that research, one of the places that we started for this entire process was a program called Anti-Bias Education. And I'm wondering if you could give us a quick overview of what that research entails. Yeah, so a woman named Louise Derman Sparks with some other folks she was working with at the time back in the 90s created the anti-bias curriculum. And it was very forward thinking and somewhat controversial because prior to that, there had not been a major focus on issues of race and gender and income within the child development theories that had existed at the time. And so she was very cutting edge in her thinking. And I think that the content is so useful because it's kind of broad, but then it's also specific at the same time. What people need to know are the primary goals of the anti-bias curriculum. And there are four of them. One is identity. And in identity, what teachers and other educators are trying to do is help children to demonstrate self-awareness so that they're aware of things like their own race, their own gender, 
so that they have a grounding in anything that they do as they socialize with other people. The second is diversity. And in that goal, what teachers are trying to do is help children to express comfort and joy with human diversity, which we can see is really, really important in general, but especially important today, so that children begin to, as children begin to have experiences with other people, they come from a position of welcoming versus rejecting other people and celebrating diversity. The third one is justice, and that's where things get a little more serious, I guess you could say. And in that, what teachers are trying to do is help children to recognize unfairness and be able to describe it as well as understand that unfairness hurts. And so with that, you see that they understand where they are, they accept other people, and then they begin to learn that either they or other people are not treated fairly. And so for that, what we're trying to do is help them be better able to recognize that and know that it's okay to reject it. And then lastly is activism. And so that's where you take that learning to the next level where they actually are able to feel empowered and have the skills to act with others and alone against prejudice. So those four pillars are really what we structured a lot of the Imagine Equity series around. And as an example, with the the idea of identity and helping kids understand and celebrate their own identity, we turned that into a food fight on a pirate ship. One of the things that that we did with the show is we, we use a lot of metaphor. When we're talking about emotions, we'll create a monster that shows up and kind of expresses that. And with the Imagine Equity series, we've had episodes that had a lot of metaphor in them. And an example might be in the Big Bot Burger episodes, we used Adaka Pak's identity as, as a wastelander, as sort of a stand-in for her race. And other times we were not using metaphor. So we had an episode in the Anyone Can Play episode, Macho excludes Vac from playing because Vac is Asian. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that use of metaphor being implicit versus explicit in how we talk to kids about race and identity. If, if there's ways that like there's value in both of those and being explicit about talking about race and versus using metaphor to discuss it with with kids. Yeah, my views on that have actually started to change a little because I earlier on was staunchly opposed to using metaphor because I understand, you know, how serious issues of race and racial discrimination, racism are in general in society. But I think that with young children, what can happen is that when you use metaphor, it can be a way to help children learn to think in abstractions, which is something that I had not considered before. And I also think that it's useful in many other ways, but also is very effective if you can balance it with something that's more explicit. So, and I think the program does a really good job of that by sharing the story in an implicit way, but then having direct dialogue with the audience about things that are a lot more explicit. So using the characters and the story as a way to talk about an issue like being discriminated against, and then talking to adults and the children who are listening about their own experiences being discriminated against. And so that way you're kind of blending the two together. And it's not like they're diametrically opposed anyway. 
so I guess in, in general, what I'm saying is that originally I, I, my thinking was that, you know, it wasn't getting to the point, you know, it doesn't get to the point, but there are ways to use it so that people can come along. And especially for children, for children to begin to think, oh, this is what I learned about this character who I like in this show. And this is what's happening in school. And then making those connections is helping them to think in abstract ways. Indeed. We actually got a really great it was a, a listener posted on Instagram that she and her daughter had listened to the the Big Bot Burger episode, which is about a, a protest at a lunch counter, basically. And later that week, they had gone to, there's a museum in their town about a lunch counter sit-in protest. And her daughter was able to make the connection between the injustice of the Big Bot Burger versus the injustice of the the, the actual sit-in. And that was that was really fulfilling for me personally. But mm-hmm. that same week, we also got an email from a listener who was upset that we she felt that we weren't necessarily being true to the struggle and the history. And I think there's a balance there. I think we know that we have a, a very lovely but very broad audience who all have different needs. And so some episodes are going to work really well for some kids and some might ring a little hollow for the grownups in their lives that, that maybe want us to do something else. Yeah, I think that People should sometimes, and I'm a really big critic of media when it doesn't do its job well, so I'm surprised that I'm saying this, but they should give a little grace because this is something that for many organizations and companies is very new and they do the best they can. And I think that while they are free to share and air their criticism, they should keep in mind that people are actually working as hard as they can to do it right the first time. But that shouldn't stop them for, you know, sharing their feelings, because what that does is it helps people kind of elevate what it is they're thinking and doing and then get even better the next time. Indeed, indeed. And I think for us, it's, it's important to hear those as well, because we're not done talking about this on the Imagine Neighborhood. We, I think one of the things that's important about doing this kind of work is, is quantity in a weird way, that the more you're able to have these conversations, the more you're discussing them, the more it kind of normalizes these conversations being had. And as you say, we get another chance to try to do it right. If it doesn't work for everybody, then maybe this, the next time we do an episode about this particular topic, we'll, we'll do it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That does lead me to a question about where do children learn about race? You know, I, I doubt that listening to the Imagine Neighborhood is the first time that a, a kid is going to have, have an experience of, of learning about race. But where do kids learn about race? Kids learn from race everywhere and from everyone. So they learn about it from all the different platforms that they use to connect with media. So television, looking at phones, looking at computers, looking at tablets. If they're looking at information There might not be overt racial content there, but those are places where they can learn about race. And when I say from everyone, from all of their social interactions. So they learn it from their peers, from young children. They learn it from adults and they learn it in school. And sometimes in school, what they do is learn about it because there's an absence of conversation about race. So what they learn from that is that this is something that might not be so important, even if it's being talked about at home. And so I guess what that means is that they have conversations, they engage in interactions, they take little bits and pieces of information and try to put it together on their own, very often unsuccessfully, (laughs) because they come up with odd ideas about things if somebody is not having conversations with them about it. 
So in the in the absence of any kind of conversation, they'll start sort of drawing some conclusions that that, that may or may not be correct, and, and they're just based on their experience of it. Yes. So I have an example. I probably shared it. It's from a book called You Can't Celebrate That. A young white girl tells a young biracial boy that he can't celebrate Rosh Hashanah because he's only people who look like her can celebrate it. Her parents never told her that, but who she saw going to the temple were people who look like her. And so she put two and two together and came up with five and decided that that means all, only people who look like me and my family can celebrate this. And so she made that statement to this little boy and her parents were aghast. They had no idea where she got that from. So it's because they weren't having conversations with her about it. I could also imagine that if kids are in situations where race isn't being talked about, that they might think it's not okay to talk about, or they might try to shut conversations. Like as they grow, they might say like, well, that's, that's not a good conversation to have, or that's a rude conversation to have, or that's not an appropriate conversation to have. Is that, is that a danger too, in not having conversations about race? Yes. And I think what happens is a child may ask a question and the parent may not be prepared to answer that question in ways that are helpful. And they also may exhibit body language that tells children that this is a taboo topic. And so either verbally or non-verbally, they get the message that this is something that I should not raise ever again. And so they don't. And so that's another reason that they end up coming up with a lot of their own conclusions is because they actually learned, been socialized to not talk about it. Wow. I mean, uh, that sounds really powerful. If you're a, if you're a grown up in a kid's life, it's not just the words and actions that you're doing, but even the body language that you're presenting is communicating to kids what, what is and isn't okay to talk about. That's really profound. <laughs> and a lot of times they don't even know why they're saying things. There's another story that I'll share. So there's a book by Jennifer Eberhardt. Jennifer Eberhardt has also done a TED Talk where she talks about this experience with her son. It's our son's first time on a plane. He's five years old and he looks around the plane and he sees the only black male on the plane and says that the male looks like her, his dad. And she says, well, he doesn't look anything like his dad. And then her son says, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And she says, what? Whoa. And he said, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. And she says, why did you say that? Now, I would never tell her this to her face, but she probably would, should not have said, why would you say that in that tone of voice? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because he didn't really understand what was going on either. But she asked him that, and she says that he got the saddest look on his face and said, I don't know why I said that. And I was so moved by that story because it showed that he had been socialized to think this about black males and probably didn't even realize it. And then out it comes in a conversation with his mom. And then she's completely distressed about him making that kind of statement. But it just shows you what's going on in kids' heads sometimes. They're thinking about these things, putting these things together. And again, if we're not talking to them, we don't even know what they're thinking. Wow. Yeah. And it's given the amount of information that kids receive and are able to absorb in a given day, it seems like there's there's so much work that grownups have to do to like to make these conversations 
part of just the day-to-day -day routine. That perfectly leads into the next question that I had is, what do grown-ups do about negative messages their kids might receive about race? So I think the most important thing for parents to do about those negative messages at the onset is to have conversations with their children about their experiences in general. And I often use an example of a document that my coworker created that she, she sat down and told me a story about how every day when she picked her son up from school, she asked him a series of questions. You know, so you ask children questions. How was school? Okay, what'd you do? Nothing. <laughs> so that's the way they answer those questions. <laughs> and then she created this series of questions to dig a little deeper. So tell me, did anybody say something to you that made you feel really good? Did somebody say something to you that made you feel bad? Did they say something to you about the way you look? Did you say anything to anybody else about the way they look or that made them look bad? Question after question after question. None of those questions ask about race, but those questions would get to issues of race. Sure. So the, the most important thing is to have a conversation about what was happening during the day and make sure that you have your poker face so you don't, <laughs> you don't have those kind of reactions where they say, think to themselves, uh-oh, I shouldn't have said that. You don't want that to happen. So once you know what's been happening in their day, then you can figure out, okay, this was a racialized incident, that was a racialized incident, or it wasn't. And then you can begin to have conversations with them about race after you find out what's happening. I can share another quick story. I just recently interviewed a woman named Dr. Jarlene Daniel, who is the former executive director of the National Association for the Education of Young Children. So no small potatoes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she told a story about a little boy who, a white boy whose best friend in, in early education and childcare was a black child. And one day the white child came to school and just was talking about how he didn't like black people and used the N-word. But he was still playing with his friend the whole time. And she told the mom, the mom was flabbergasted. And she said, okay, just when you get home, talk, have a conversation with him. Well, she found out that he was watching television with somebody in the family who was obviously biased or racist and was making statements about a black character on television. And so the child picked up everything that he was saying, started mm. repeating it, even though he didn't believe it. He was just repeating what he had heard. So that's what I mean. It goes back to that answer to your other question. They're learning it from everybody and they are modeling what they hear, repeating what they hear. And again, unless you're having conversations with them, then you don't know what's happening. And so what they should do is begin by figuring out their own ways of learning about what their child's environment has been and what their experiences have been. And from there, do either work that supplements, because the kids could be having positive experiences, supplement that with more, or countering that with factual information to reject the negative information they may have received. Yeah, yeah. That's incredibly powerful. Just one <laughs> that a young person would absorb so much from that, from just from from those types of interactions that it would completely countermand their true beliefs of their best friend, you know, or, the, mm -hmm. or, the, or who their best friends are. You know, a big part of the Imagine Equity series was also about, you know, we had 
we talked we talked about activism and taking action and we always encourage on the show conversations and in this series we also talked about next steps that people can take is they're learning more about about equity and i'm wondering if you have any thoughts about like you know that not only do kids hear what what people are saying but they also see the actions that you take and i'm wondering if you thought if if you have any suggestions of of actions that parents can take as they're helping their kids develop their their ideas about about race and equity well in particular for younger children their social environment while it grows as they grow and develop it's still pretty small in many ways so it's typically limited to home and family extended family and then friends as well as school. And so I would think that if you're gonna take action, you try to take action in those realms. And one way might be if you are along this path or you've begun to travel along this path and you're learning more and more and you're getting really excited because it's exciting to learn about the truth and be able to share it with young children. If you see that those kinds of things are not happening at your school, I would begin small, maybe talking to a teacher just to get a feel for what, what's happening in the school in terms of helping children understand race and racism. And from there, I would suggest reaching to leadership because very often teachers do want to do good things, but they don't have power in schools, as well as connecting with other parents. So I think doing that is, is really a big step. You know, changing a school is a big thing. It's not a small thing. Changing what's happening in, in a classroom is a big thing. It's not a small thing. And so I think that if you do it within the sort of environment, the social environment that you know your child will be in, then you'll know, one, that these are people that you come in contact with pretty regularly. So it's not going to be hard for you to have those conversations in many cases with them. And then secondly, you know that it's going to be changing what your child experiences on a daily basis. That's a great example of grown-ups showing their kids how they can be an activist too by changing something that they feel very strongly about and, and making another environment a better place. You can make your home environment a better place and you can make your school environment a better place too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the last question I, I have for you is if there are organizations you feel are doing good work that you'd like to give a shout out to or that you'd like to support, if there's places that you think our listeners might be interested in learning more about the kind of work that they're doing. Yeah. Of course, the Pride program at University of Pittsburgh does amazing. Yes, the Pride <laughs> program at the University of Pittsburgh, obviously. But I've been a fan of PBS for some time, and they've begun producing content around race. They have the series called PBS Kids Talk, and they recently developed one episode or segment for that called PBS Kids Talk About Race, which is really good. But the others that come to mind for me are Embrace Race If you just type Embrace Race into a Google search, you'll find them. They do a lot of really great work, particularly in finding scholars who've been doing research around race and having conversations with them. They have a large archive of uh, webinars that's free that you can actually go and listen to. Another is Facing History in Ourselves, and that's really geared more towards teachers but parents could probably learn something from it too. They have lots and lots of really good curriculum resources. And then Teaching for Change is again, one for teachers and then another for parents is raising race conscious children. That's fantastic. Well, Dr. Aisha, thank you so much for joining us again in the Imagine Neighborhood. We really enjoy not just working with you, but also when you come on and, and, and have these conversations with us. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for having me, Scotty. And thank you, grown-ups, for listening to this week's episode. We hope you're having these very important conversations in your families. The Imagine Neighborhood's going to take a couple weeks off. We'll be back in May for some brand new episodes. So in the meantime, we're going to have some of our favorite episodes in the feed and a Q&A episode coming up soon. We hope you stick with us, and we'll see you in May in the Imagine Neighborhood. And don't forget, you can always reach out. Go to imagineneighborhood.org. You can send us drawings for the Infinite Refrigerator. Let us know how we're doing, kind at imagineneighborhood.org. And if there's topics you would like us to cover on the show, you can let us know. You can also let us know, how are you kind today? <laughs>